Bible, you might want to take it and turn to Jeremiah chapter 32, and I want to talk to you about the promise of the king. And just like uh, Nicole said, uh, he is, his promises have come true. He's never failed us, and I thought that was uh, good insight, Nicole, when you said uh, the human nature of it is that we go yet, you know. And uh, I was listening to a guy on the radio this past week, and he said, um, a little poem, and I'm going to get it wrong probably, but it was like, uh, the Lord kept his promises yesterday. Today he'll do the same. But what about tomorrow? He'll do it anyway. Praise his name. Right? And uh, But we do. We get sometimes thinking about what's immediately in front of us, and we have a hard time with that. And you can imagine in Jeremiah's day, this was a problem because Babylon was now sieging the city. They're outside the gate. They're about ready to breach, which means the city's going to fall. It means people are going to be dying. It means people are going to be deported. It means the temple is going to be destroyed. So they had some challenging days, too. They have their own quarantine. And uh, we're living in, I will say this, and I chose this word carefully, but we are living in great times. We really are. And yeah, COVID-19 is still dominating the news. And uh, in, although here in Idaho we've seen things begin to move slowly, Blue Lakes traffic is about back to normal. For a while there it was really nice, wasn't it? <laughs> But now, you know, it's uh, stuff's picking up. I'm looking forward to when the smaller shops and restaurants and local retailers can get going again. And I want to spend my stimulus money on the, on the little guys, not the big box guys. Those guys made a fortune during this time. And it's the little guys that are, uh, that are suffering. So if you haven't spent your stimulus, save it and spend it on the local guys. Um, but other states are not responding so quickly, and there's a lot of outbreaks still, and people are getting sick, and people are going to continue to get sick because this is a virus, and it's going to make its way through. But there's no doubt in my mind that we're living in the last days as we know it. And the long wait for the return of Jesus is really coming to a close, and so that great old Andre Crouch song, soon and very soon, we are going to see the king. No more dying there. We're going to see the king. No more crying there. We're going to see the king. So many people feel that these things are certainly different. And, you know, if you talk to the average person, even if they don't know their Bible, they will say, it seems like we're living in the last days. There's just a sense, isn't there? They feel like the end is near, but they don't know what to do about it. They're unaware of the promises of God. They're unaware of the fact that the Messiah came and he's coming again. And uh, they're unaware of the fact that when he came the first time, he's, he brought ultimate reconciliation. And when he comes again, all things are going to be reconciled the way they're meant to be. That God is going to judge the world. He's going to judge sinners. He's going to uh, judge evil. And he's going to destroy evil once and for all. No amen to that? He's going to. He's going to put it right. And all 
Creation is groaning for that day. And COVID-19 is a loud groan. But the prophecies of Jeremiah are absolutely relevant for us today, even as they were for his day and generation. Specific warnings of judgment by Babylon unfolded over the course of several decades. Jeremiah had been preaching this a long time. He didn't get up on Saturday and say it's happening Tuesday, all right? This was a long stretch of prophecies, a long preaching cycle Babylon is coming. God is going to judge. And everybody's like, mm-hmm. And then as it got closer, they're like, mm-hmm. <laughs> then as they were outside the gate, they're like, ooh. It happened exactly as God told Jeremiah to tell the people as well. And although he was, he was faithful in delivering this message, he was accused of being a false prophet. He was accused of being a traitor of being a rebel. He faithfully put forth the message of God, but his countrymen was saying, that's un-Israel. We'd say that's un-American. And many of the prophecies were immediate, and many for a time yet future, and many for a very distant time in which we find ourselves right now. Many specific to the Lord Jesus were only partially fulfilled during his life among men. The finished work of our Savior through his bodily sacrifice on the cross and the ushering in of the new covenant have been fulfilled. Every spirit-born believer in Jesus is living in those promises today. Thank you, Tammy. By the way, did we collaborate? Did you and I get together and discuss? No. But you're exactly right. We don't look to the provisions God has already given, but we have them in Christ. And Jesus is going to come again, and he's going to come again visibly and bodily, and he's going to come with vengeance upon the enemies of God. He's going to bring a final deliverance to all who have loved his appearing And with this rather long introduction that I've given, I want us to dive into Jeremiah 32 and 33. And I want you to look at verses 1 to 3. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Zedekiah was king of Judah. Who was Nebuchadnezzar? He was king of Babylon. Okay? Now, at that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem. And Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard, which was in the house of the king of Judah. He was was detained. Because Zedekiah, king of Judah, had shut him up, saying, Why do you prophesy, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I'm about to give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he will take it. In other words, Zedekiah is going, shut up. Stop talking about this. Tired of hearing it. Where was the army of Babylon? (laughs) They were right outside besieging the city. That means no food. Nothing was coming in. Nothing was going out. Commerce was shut down. Sounds familiar? And It was an unsettling time. And the king and the officials wanted to hear something different. 
and, and they felt like his words were harming the morale of the people and it would make their leadership unstable and give an advantage to the enemy. They refused to believe that they were ultimately fighting against God. And during Jeremiah's imprisonment, God gave him a word. Now, this is, this is amazing, folks. He gave him a word that his cousin, Hanamel was his name, was going to come to the prison and offer to sell a field to him because Jeremiah was his nearest relative. A kinsman redeemer, it was called. And so when Hanamel actually arrived with the deed in hand, Jeremiah purchased the field and had his scribe take care of all the legal matters pertaining to this transaction. You read about it in chapter 32, beginning of verse 6. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, is coming to you, saying, Buy for yourself my field, which is in Anathoth, for you have the right of redemption to buy it. And the next thing you know, Hanamel comes, and he's got the deed in hand. And so I bought the field, he says in verse 9. And uh, I weighed out the silver for him, and I signed the deed, and, and called in the witnesses, and waved out, waved out the silver, etc., etc. And Baruch, the uh, scribe, went and had it all recorded in the proper place. Now, why is this story even relevant? Does that seem like kind of a weird, you know? Babylon is outside. Everything's about ready to be destroyed. And God says, oh, by the way, your cousin's coming. He wants to sell a field, and I want you to buy it. If you're buying real estate, and uh, the enemy is already in the land, is that a good investment? And that's exactly what Jeremiah says in verse 16. After I'd given the deed of purchase to Baruch, he, he said, he started this prayer, Ah, oh, Lord God, Behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your, art, your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. Who shows loving kindness to thousands and repays the iniquity of the fathers unto the bosom of their children after them? Oh, great and mighty God, the Lord of hosts is his name. Isn't this a great prayer? Great in counsel, mighty indeed whose eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of men, giving to everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds, who has set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. And even to this day, both in Israel and among mankind, you have made a name for yourself as it is this day. Now, this is a great prayer, but what I want to tell you is that Jeremiah has something he wants to say to God, but he's prefacing it with all this praise. Because what he's going to say is, why did you want me to buy real estate now? That's where the prayer is going. Verse 25, you said, buy for yourself a field of, with the money and call in witnesses, although the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. <laughs> Have any of you ever said, God, what are you doing? Anybody? Yeah, I mean, Jeremiah, he's heard the word of the Lord. He's not, he knows he's heard it. And Hananel, or Hanamel walks in. He's got the deed. What are you up to, God? Seems like a rather poor investment to me. But God answers him. 
And he said, Behold, I am the Lord, verse 27, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too difficult for me? Didn't, didn't Jeremiah start with, Oh, Lord, God, nothing's too difficult for you? And the Lord's answer is, Is anything too difficult for me? Therefore, says the Lord, Behold, I'm about to give this city into the hand of the Chaldeans and the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. They're fighting against the city, and God is telling him, I'm doing this because the idolatry of the people, they have forsaken me. If you notice in verse 33, they've turned their back to me and not their face, though I taught them teaching again and again, but they would not listen or receive instruction. They put their detestable things in the house, which is called by my name. In other words, in the very temple of God, they had set up anterooms with idols in them so that the people could cover whatever base they wanted. It was going to be the coexist bumper sticker. Okay? Whatever religion you want. And we'll all just meet here in the temple and it'll all be really good. And God says, no! These are idols. They're detestable. And they defiled it. And they built high places to Baal. And they're in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire of Molech, which I had not commanded them. It didn't even enter my mind that they should do this and cause Judah to sin. We're living in the days of Molech and Baal, where America is sacrificing the unborn and partial-born infants for the convenience of life. I know that there are many women who are, have been in difficult pregnancy. I'm not suggesting otherwise. That's why we have a place like Sage Women's Clinic to take care of people who are in crisis and why they need support and prayer. But many people do this thing out of convenience. That's what they were doing in Jeremiah's day is, You know, I'd like to have a little easier life. I'd like to have a little more money. I'd like to have a little more power. I'd like my career to expand. I'm going to offer my child and burn him alive in a fire. And you heard me right. Burn alive in a fire. Sacrificing to a God that would give them a better life. And God said, it never even entered my mind. And I know it's unpopular to say some of this stuff, but it's the truth. And in verses 36 to 44, God says, thus says the Lord. Now, in the midst of all that, now listen, isn't that about as detestable a situation as you can imagine what they were doing? It was wickedness. But he says, I'm giving the, um, into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, famine, and by pestilence. But look at verse 37. I will gather them out of the lands to which I have driven them in my anger and in my wrath and in great indignation, and I will bring them back to this place that they may dwell in safety. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way, and they will fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them, that I will not turn away from them to do them good. I will put the fear 
of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. I will rejoice over them and do them good, and I will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and all my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I brought this great disaster on the people, so I'm going to bring on them all the good I am promising them. Fields will be bought in this land, which you say, it is a desolation without man or beast. It is given to the hand of the Chaldeans. Men will buy fields for money. Sign and seal deeds and call in witnesses in the land of Benjamin, in the environs of Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah, and the cities of the hill country, and in the cities of the lowland, and the cities of the Negev, for I will restore their fortunes, says the Lord. So Jeremiah, why did you have, I have you buy a field? Because it's going to be worth something. Because I'm going to restore it. This judgment isn't forever. Isn't that an amazing story? And so he's saying, I, I'm going to do good to them. I'm going to rejoice over them. I'm going to restore their fortunes. And so we find Jeremiah is going, oh, well, he may be thinking, well, that's good for my family because 70 years from now, I'm probably not going to be around to enjoy that field. But, but my, my descendants will be. Future generations will be. And then in verse uh, chapter 33, he goes on, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the second time while he was still confined. Okay, So this is all happening when Jeremiah is confined in a, in a prison. Thus says the Lord who made the earth and who formed and established it. The Lord is his name. Call to me and I will answer you and I will tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. For thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the houses of the city and the, concerning the houses of the kings of Judah, which are broken down to make a defense against the siege ramps. In other words, they had torn down the palace and all kinds of stuff. They're trying to keep the Babylonians out. And while they're coming to fight with the Chaldeans and, and fill up their corpses, etc., etc., I will bring it to health and healing, and I will heal them, and I will reveal to them the abundance of peace and truth. And I will restore fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and will rebuild them as they were at first. Call to me and I will answer you. How many of you have ever quoted that verse? A lot of people like Jeremiah 29.11. I know the plans that I have for you, plans for good, etc., etc. Other people know this verse. Call to me and I will answer you. I want you to know that Jesus Christ, our Lord, perfectly fulfilled these things for us. He is the absolute representative of Israel and of all humanity. He is the Son of Man. He suffered outside the gate. You know what was happening outside the city? He was suffering, right? And, and this, there was... Doom and disaster. Where did Jesus die? He suffered outside the gate. He was torn to shreds. He bore the whips and the beatings for the sins of every person who has ever lived, who ever will live. He took the judgment just as it was predicted. The, book, the prophet Isaiah spoke specifically of this in chapter 53. Who's believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
for he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should be drawn to him or appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. And yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But it was, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell on him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted. And yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that's silent before its shearers, he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he is taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living? For the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was really due. His, his grave was assigned with wicked men, but yet he was with the rich man in his death. And because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Listen, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper his hand. Now, keep, keep that in your mind, okay? He will see his offspring and prolong his days if he would offer himself as a guilt offering. God is telling Jeremiah, I'm going to do some great things here. Not only is Jesus the perfect representative of Israel and humanity, but he's also the kinsman redeemer for property. He's the one who has the right to bring everything back to its rightful owner. And he came to this earth that had been wrongfully taken by the enemy and he's purchased for himself a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. He is the redeemer of all mankind. He is the son of man and reclaiming for the family of God all that belongs to God. And as sure as his afflictions came to pass, so also his victory over sin, over death, over the grave, over the devil, over every curse and every lie. He rose from the dead, and all the fortunes of heaven, which he left when he became a man, are returned upon him. And furthermore, he has the joy of a redeemed people to walk in the new covenant of promise. Look at verses 8 and 9 of chapter 33. I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me, and I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned against me and by which they have transgressed against me. And I will, it will be to me a name of joy. 
praise and glory before all nations of the earth, which will hear of all the good that I have done for them. And they will fear and tremble because of all the good and all the peace I will make for it. And thus says the Lord, yet again, there will be heard in this place of which you say it's a waste and without a man or beast. But in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem and everything that's desolate without man or inhabited, you'll hear the voice of joy and gladness. And you'll hear the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. Who's the bridegroom? Jesus. And who's the bride? And we're going to say, give thanks to the Lord of hosts. For the Lord is good. And his loving kindness is everlasting. And those who bring a thank offering to the house of the Lord, and I will restore the fortunes of the land as they were at first. Anybody deserve that? Did Israel deserve it? You deserve it? How many of you waltz up to God and say, you know, I can understand completely why you chose me. I don't know how you got along without me. Or do we come in contrition because we have done so many stupid and worthless things? And violated his covenant and spit on his love. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement for our well-being fell on him. So not, does, not only did God restore them, but he's restoring the land of Israel today. Do you know that, uh, how many of you looked at a map lately of the Middle East? Anybody? No, you ought to. You know why? Because there's a little country there called Israel. That was completely obliterated, completely dispersed throughout all the nations, completely gone for 2,000 years. And there they are. And God is restoring the fortunes. And there's a little field in a place called Anathoth in the land of Benjamin that Jeremiah bought in faith of what's happening right now. And Jesus Christ, the kinsman redeemer, has come to reclaim this earth for God. When it was given to Adam, and God said, Adam, I want you to rule over this. I want to be with you. We're going to do this together. Isn't this exciting? And Adam says, yes, it is, but I'd really like to do it without you. I don't need you, God. I just want all the stuff you can give me. Jesus came to chastise and receive that chastisement upon himself so that God could give it back. And God is giving it back. And Jesus is reclaiming the earth as we speak. Behold, the days are coming, the Lord says, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And listen now, you remember that passage in, in Isaiah I read? In verse 15, chapter 33, In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch of of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. And in those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she will be called, the Lord, our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, 
David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man before me to burn offerings and grain offerings and prepare sacrifices continually. Now, wait a minute. You remember Isaiah said that he would have offspring. Now, listen, there was a book that came out not long ago called The Da Vinci Code, and it's a lie. That supposedly Jesus got together with Mary Magdalene and they had kids and the Knights Templar or somebody has been protecting them and blah, blah. It's a lie. We are his offspring. God promises the branch of David to execute righteousness and justice in the earth. Jerusalem is going to be dwelling in safety. Let me ask you, is that happening right now? Not really. (laughs) Still bombs flying in there and all kinds of stuff. But it will happen because he's never failed me. He's never failed. God will keep his promise. And David shall never lack a man. You know, God preserved the lineage of David despite Satan's attempts to exterminate the Jews and the royal line over and over again, even up to the time of Jesus' birth when Herod had all the babies killed in Bethlehem. But he did not succeed because Jesus rose into that place of being the Messiah. He took our sins upon himself. He suffered on the cross. He was crucified for us. Our sins were dealt with. He was buried, and then he rose again from the dead, and he's risen on high, and now he has an abundance of offspring. And we're actually called his brothers. That's how this prophecy comes about, that God will raise up to David all these ones that will rule and reign. David's descendants are going to be multiplied to the point that they can't be numbered. And the Levites are going to be multiplied past the the ability to count them. That's what it says in verse 22. And the Bible tells us that when we become a believer in Jesus, God adopts us into his family. Romans 8 tells us. And the book of Hebrews says in chapter 2, verses 10 through 18, it was fitting for Jesus, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. For which reason he's not ashamed to call you and me his brethren. Saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children... Whom God has given me. Fulfilled in Jesus. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. For assuredly, he doesn't help the angels. But he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in 
things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Now, why do I read that? The prophecy says that David's descendants will be multiplied, that the descendants of Levi, the priests, will be multiplied. And then Hebrews is telling us how that's fulfilled, all centered around this guy named Abraham. Now, do you remember the story of Abraham? It was a very dark night. There was no ambient light. There were no big cities around. And they looked up into the sky, and and God says, Abraham, look up in the sky. You see all those stars? That's how many descendants you're going to have. Abraham was 90 years old. His wife was 80 years old. She was well past childbearing years. And God said, that's how many kids you're going to have, how many descendants. Now, you know the story, right? What did Abraham do? He said, okay. That's all he did. I believe you. If you say so, ah, Lord God, you have made the heavens and the earth with thy great power. Nothing is too difficult for thee. He just believed. And guess what? Every one of those stars, you you remember a few years back there was a fad where you could name a star after somebody? Every one of those stars is you and me. They already had names. Whoever, somebody was selling something that already had a name on it. Because we are Davids. We are the priests. You say, well, pastor, you're really, you're really going crazy here, aren't you? Seems like you're going a little wacko. Well, listen to what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. And coming to him as a living stone, which was rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We're priests. And that's not all. In 9 and 10, he says, But you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. You are a chosen race, a a, a what? Royal? That's not a vacuum. You're a royal priesthood. David, Levi, royalty and priesthood coming together in in the fulfillment of God's word to Jeremiah. We are a kingdom and priests. So what does that mean? It means as 
the line of David, we have authority to proclaim the word of God. We have authority to pray. We have authority to cast out demons. We have authority. And as priests, we can speak to people about God and we can pray to God about people. We can pray for the lost and we can share the gospel with the lost and we can pray for each other because we are kings and priests unto our God. So Abraham became a great ruler and he became a priest and all of his descendants after him who in faith through Jesus Christ are brought into his royal family. Now, if you, go, if you still don't believe me, you're going to have to do this on your own. Romans chapter 9 through 11. Galatians chapter 4, all spelled out right there. So let me give you one last thought. While we are, in fact, David's line and priests to God according to the word, we are to practice these divine callings now by prayer, by proclamation of the gospel, by engaging in social action that's consistent with restoring people and their dignity. We are to care for the poor and the sick. We are to take care of the vulnerable. We're to stand up for justice in the courts and speak up to those who hold elected office. And if we don't run for those positions ourselves, let us help those who do by informing them of the truth and praying for them. Because the kingdom of God is both now and not yet. It will never be perfect now. But it doesn't mean we sit by idly waiting saying, Oh, come, Jesus. I'm getting tired of all this. When are you coming? But we engage in prayer and witness and involvement. And so if we're at home, we're parents first and we're teaching our kids. If we're in the schools, be it we are patrons or teachers, we're engaged. If in politics, we vote and we pray If we're in hospitals and institutions or wherever we are, we are salt and light for Jesus Christ. And especially in the marketplace. But here's the good news. It's not perfect now, but it will be. When Jesus comes in glory, listen to these words. I leave you with these words. They're found in the Bible. Titus 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. The word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you for the promise and all promises. And thank you that you have never failed us. May we learn to never say yet.
May we always live in the assurance that God is the maker of heaven and earth. (laughs) And uh, nothing is too difficult for you. That you could take a group of people like us and turn us into royalty and priests is staggering. But you do. And we thank you, Lord, that 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 prophecy so many, many years ago and all the stuff that happened to Judah and the judgment of God, you are now restoring even as we speak today. Your word is coming true. You are faithful. And you have made it possible through your Messiah, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so, Father, I pray that there's anybody here today that does not know Jesus in a way that they can say with absolute confidence, yeah, I know the Lord. They're not sure. Father God, that today they would not leave this place without being absolutely certain. And like Abraham, just to look up and say, okay, I believe. I believe. Come into my life. Change me. I'm yours. I give myself to you. And I trust that you'll make me new again. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.